We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, learning from God's Word in this wonderful book that He's given us, learning about the unstoppable gospel, the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit through the witness of the church under the sovereign hand of the Father, and how this gospel, through the witness of the church, changes the world, essentially how this witness goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's a wonderful book uh, showing us God at work through the gospel, through his church. And we've been following uh, Paul at this point in the book of Acts as he's with his church planting team going throughout, uh, at this point, Macedonia, then uh, Greece, down to Athens, and now to Corinth. So we're going to read the next installment in the story as he goes to the city of Corinth. We're going to get to look and see God at work through Paul and, and, and I believe learn some particular lessons that God has for us in this section of Scripture. Isn't it wonderful to come together on Sunday mornings and hear God's Word and, and know that it isn't just about learning more about the Word and as important as that is, but it's about encountering God Himself. God is a speaking God. He's given us His Word that we would hear from Him. And that's our prayer every Sunday, that we would hear from God. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask Him to speak to us. Lord, we thank You that You're here with us. And God, we don't ever want to take it for granted that You, the infinite God of the universe, the Holy One, the Glorious One, the One who dwells in unapproachable light, that You have made provision for us to be forgiven, and to be welcomed into your presence and counted as your sons and daughters. And Lord, that as your sons and daughters and as those made in your image, you want us to hear from you and know the life that comes through you. So Lord, we thank you for Christ and we thank you for your desire to speak to us. And we ask you, Lord, now as we go through Acts to speak. Help me, Lord, to serve you and serve your people. Lord, I am aware of my weakness and need, and I pray, Lord, help me, help me to serve you, and may we hear from you, O God, as we look at your word this morning. Would you work your purposes and spread the fame and greatness of your name through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 18, we'll start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 17. Paul has just come from Athens, we looked at that last week. And it starts in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks... When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. A worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your claim, your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Acts 18, 1 through 17. Paul is continuing on his journey in church planting. It's about the year 49 or so, and he's moved from Athens. Athens is a very influential city, but a relatively small city at the time, about 10,000 people. He's moved to Corinth, and Corinth at the time is the big city in the region. It's the capital of Achaia. It's about 100,000 people or so, maybe more than that. And it's a place of great influence. It's a prominent place. It's a, a trade city. It's, it's known... For this, uh, being a prominent city, and it's known also for its very worldly reputation. And he comes to this city, this uh, strategic city of Corinth, comes there from Athens. He is by himself at this point. Uh, He's without Silas and Timothy. He goes to Corinth, and he meets there Aquila and Priscilla. And they have been kicked out of Rome at the time, uh, right around the year uh, 49, if I remember right. Uh, the Emperor Claudius had made a decree that all the Jews were to be kicked out of Rome because of a dispute over Christus. And, uh, and he probably meant a dispute over Christ. There was a controversy going on between the Christian Jews and the non-Christian Jews over Christ. And probably some, uh, I don't know, some conflict like we've seen in the book of Acts. And so Claudius says, enough, all of you leave Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla leave and they come to Corinth and Paul meets them. They are tent makers. They're probably Christians, though the text doesn't say that. We see basically Paul uh, joins with them and from, the, from this point onward has a partnership with them. So they're believers. We learn that later for sure. And God provides for Paul in this home with Aquila and Priscilla. And he works. He works as a tent maker at this point. That's his profession. And uh, he reasons on the Sabbath. On Saturday, he goes to the synagogue like he's done elsewhere. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And then uh, finally Silas and Timothy come and they bring a gift from the Macedonian church. It doesn't say that here, but we learn elsewhere in Philippians and Second Corinthians that they, there was a financial gift that the church, the Macedonian church provided out of their love for Paul, their love for the gospel. So they bring that gift and it releases Paul to do full-time to share the gospel, to be occupied with the word as the text says. And so he does. He shares. He shares with people and he shares with the Jews. He's sharing the gospel with the Jews and, and there are Jews that come to Christ. But then, like he's seen before, they start to oppose and revile him. Now, if the story 
at this point took a turn that they opposed and reviled, persecuted him and kicked him out of the city, it would be like a lot of other of the cities he was at, wouldn't it be? We've seen this pattern where Paul goes, he reasons with the, with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, the Jews oppose him and then he goes to the Gentiles like he does in this story. And there's some, a little bit of a harvest and then there's a persecution. And we know from the story what's happened to Paul before, right? He's been kicked out. He's been stoned, perhaps to death or near death. He's been arrested and beaten in Philippi. But the story here takes a little bit of a turn at that point where you would expect that Paul would be persecuted and kicked out of the city. What we see in our text is just around at that point where you'd expect that, Luke tells us that God spoke to Paul at night in a vision. And he makes promises to Paul. He makes promises to Paul at that point. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He makes three promises to Paul in this vision. He promises Paul that he'll be with him, so he promises his presence. He promises that he'll keep him from being attacked and harmed, so he promises his protection. And then he promises him that there's many of his people he has in the city, so he promises his people. Three promises he makes to Paul. And this is important as we understand the ministry of Paul, but it's also important for us. So for the lesson that Paul learns here is also a lesson for us. And that is this. That our sovereign God's promises, our sovereign God's promises are our hope and strength for mission. Our sovereign God's promises are our hope and strength for mission. They were Paul's hope and strength. They are what kept him going. And they are our hope and strength as well. God's promises are our hope and strength for mission. We need need God's promises. We We need God's promises like Paul did if we are to continue in the mission. So let's look at Paul. Let's look at how these promises functioned in his life in this story of his ministry in Corinth. Luke doesn't get into this as much. He doesn't really touch it here in this story. Uh, He wants us to know some things related to it, but he doesn't get into the detail. We, We can look elsewhere, though, to see what Paul's likely state of mind and heart at this point was. He'd just come from Athens, and he preached his heart out in Athens, didn't he? He preached his heart out. He did did his very best to reach the Athenians a a fantastic message that was culturally appropriate, Christ-centered for the Athenians. And the result of that was that there were a few believers. I mean, it was wonderful to see a few believers, but not a whole lot came to Christ. And he left Athens likely somewhat uh, dejected, somewhat feeling low, perhaps. We don't know for sure, but, but that's perhaps part of what was going on. But we know also for sure that he was carrying some other things on his heart. He had a great concern for the Macedonian churches. He went to Athens, he was, he was in Athens, and he went to Corinth, and he had this burden for the Macedonian churches. He had this strong burden. It was so strong that he wanted Timothy and Silas to stay back. He was willing to be by himself, which he never did. He always was ministering as a team. He was willing to be by himself if it meant that they could go back and help the churches. 
So listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a letter he wrote from Corinth to the church in Thessalonica that, that communicates his heart, his burden, that he was bearing at this point as he went into Corinth. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is burdened by the churches in Macedonia. He wants to be back there. It was not normal to move on so quickly. He had to because of persecution. He was burdened by the churches and burdened to the point that he, he released the rest of his team. And, and Luke doesn't get into the details. It, it looks like probably uh, they remained and then came with him. Then he sent them back to the Macedonian churches to care for them. And so he goes to Corinth heavy-hearted, concerned, as he communicates from Corinth in this letter. But that wasn't all that was going on for Paul. It was not only the burden of the churches in Macedonia, these people that he loved and delighted in, and his concern that maybe, maybe all that work, all that work that had been done, those lives that seemed to have been changed, would, would, would fall away and be in vain. In 1 Corinthians, we also learn of how he came to Corinth. How he came to Corinth, perhaps because of his experience in Athens and the, and the small results, perhaps because of his experience in Philippi and uh, Thessalonica and Berea, the, the danger that he had faced being beaten in Philippi, perhaps remembering Lystra, how he was stoned to death just about. Because of these things, perhaps, he, he writes in 1 Corinthians reminding them of when he first came and says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He came to Corinth in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. So he had this burden of the church in Macedonia. He came in fear and trembling. He came to Corinth burdened and perhaps feeling very low. The Bible scholar Richard Longenecker says 
He must have traveled from Athens to Corinth in a dejected mood, wondering what worse could happen and why God had allowed matters to fall out so badly. Anxiety continued to weigh upon him and drive him into depression. He may have been ill during much of this period from the effects of the beating at Philippi. Paul was not a superhuman. He was a man. He was a human just like us. And he was burdened. He was weighed down. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, as he talks about another experience, he describes that experience. He says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul was like you and me. Because I think the reality for all of us at some point, and perhaps some of us at this point, we feel like Paul. We feel burdened. We feel overwhelmed. We despair. We are discouraged. We think, why go on? I'm not seeing results. I'm overwhelmed. Why should I go on? That's the situation that Paul is in. And that is a situation where our faithful God comes and His kindness and his love for Paul, and his love for the mission that Paul's called to, and speaks promises to Paul. And those promises for Paul make all the difference. They make all the difference for him at that moment. They strengthen him. They give him hope, and they propel him forward in the mission that God had called him to. And we, like Paul, need to hear the promises of God. We need to hear God speak to us when we're in that place of of anxiety or depression or discouragement. We need to hear the promises of God. And though these promises are specific for Paul, there are principles behind these three promises that God makes to Paul that apply to all of us. So it's worthwhile to dig into these promises and to think about them for a while. First, The promise of God's presence. God promises his presence with Paul. Isn't it interesting the first thing God says to him? He tells him to not be afraid. Go on speaking. So don't give up on the mission, Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't be silent. Why? For I am with you. That's the first and most important promise that God gives Paul. For I am with you. And throughout Scripture, as God seeks to minister to His people, He makes that promise as the first and most important promise. For I am with you. We can look throughout Scripture. When He's speaking to Moses, Moses, Moses thinks, you know, I, I can't do this. I, I stutter and, and I'm just a shepherd. Moses' opinion of himself has, has gone down from you know, thinking he was the, the Savior to thinking, I can't do this. He's discouraged. And so God says to him in Exodus 3, it says, uh, Moses says, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, God says, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says to Moses, I will be with you. You're discouraged, you're doubting. Remember, I will be with you. He says to Joshua, Perhaps timid Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's the promise to Joshua. I am with you. To Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. 
Jeremiah is afraid of what it means to be a prophet. He says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God makes a promise in Isaiah 41 to Israel, fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Matthew 28, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He wants them to go out on the mission. Listen to what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the first and most important promise we need to hear. God is with us. And if you're a believer, if you've believed in Christ, the, the, the truth of the gospel that he died for our sins and rose again, if you believe that, if you've put your trust in, in what he has done, turn from your sins and put your trust in him, even if your faith is little tiny and wavers and you doubt and you feel like most of the time you're like Paul in Corinth, the truth is that he is with you. Whether you feel it or not, he is with you. That is your strength. That is what propels us forward to know that the God of the universe, the Holy One, the One who rules over all, the One who determines all things, He Himself, the Mighty One, is with us. And if He's with us, we can have hope, we can have strength, we can face the day. He's with us. When, I, uh, when the kids were younger in our family, um, I can remember I... I uh, we taught them how to swim. We uh, had a swimming pool. We also loved to go to the ocean. We're a family that enjoys the water. And I used to be a, a swimming instructor as well. And I can remember teaching them to swim. And, and this is when they're about like two, three, four, five, or six, depending on each of them learned at a different age. And I can remember the experience of teaching them to swim. They would love the water as long as I was holding them close. And we would go out and I'd go out where it was deeper over their heads, and I would bob up and down with them, just kind of get them used to that. Uh, and they were great. As a matter of fact, I can remember, I have a picture. It was on my computer this morning, uh, a display picture, of me with my daughter Mary uh, at the ocean, and the surf is really high. And I can remember she loved, I think they all loved this, I would hold them and go into the surf. You know, the waves would come in and, and wash over us. And we were, they, you know, they loved that. They were fine. Teaching them to swim, they were fine as long as I held them. But I can remember the sense of panic the first few times I kind of held them out and tried to get them used to floating a little bit. Did you guys ever, parents, teach your kids, you know the panic, and it's like, you know, utter panic, ah, and they want to grab a hold of you and hold on to you and be with you. I think we're like that with our Father, and it's a good thing. And when, we're on, when we feel like we're on our own, we panic like our kids did. And the truth is actually that God never lets us go. He holds us. And we need to know that he's holding us like our kids needed to know that we were there. We need to know that he holds us. And when we know that he holds us, when we know that he's close, that we're with him, we can face the surf. We can go out into areas we're maybe afraid of. We can overcome the temptation to be overwhelmed. Paul needed to hear this promise as he went forth in this mission, we need to hear it as well. The Lord our God is with us. Second promise that God makes to Paul, he says to him that, uh, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For no one will attack you to harm you. He tells Paul that he, 
that he is going to protect him, that he's with him to protect him. Now, Paul has faced some pretty serious trials. And so if I were Paul, this would be a really sweet thing to hear. (laughs) You're not going to get beat up this time. You're not going to get stoned. Um, you know, you're not going to be beaten with the rods. I'm with you to protect you. Now, now that's a specific promise to Paul for this time. And we're going to see in the story, by the way, how God provides in these promises, even in the story and further on uh, as we follow the story along. God was promising Paul to protect him, that he was going to protect him from this constant physical persecution that he was experiencing. And that was a specific promise to Paul, but there's a principle behind it. The principle is this, that God is in control of all the things that happen to us. And he ultimately protects us. He protects us and he apportions things to us. If there's going to be a trial we face, it it comes from him. He's allowed it. And there was a season for Paul where going to a city meant that he was going to be beaten. It meant that he was going to face terrible persecution. But God at this point said, okay, Paul, now is a season where I'm going to provide some rest for you here in Corinth. And, And it looks like that continued to some degree from here on out as well. He didn't face quite the same thing that he did before. God said, it's a season now where I'm going to protect you from this persecution. And the same God who's over the season where there was persecution is also over the season where there's peace, where there's protection. And so he makes his promise to Paul, and the principle holds for us as well, that God apportions to us seasons of trial and seasons of peace. And he's over all of it. And he knows how to mix them together. We can trust him in that. There will be times when he says, he may not say to us, but he says to the heavenlies, this is a time of peace. You're going to have a season of provision and peace. And there may be times when he says, this is a season of trial. I have things to work in and through you in this season. But it's the same Lord overall. That's the truth. truth. That's the principle behind this. That God is the one who ultimately protects us and provides for us in the different seasons. I love the hymn, uh, Day by Day. I don't, not the one from the... The hippie one, but the other one. Um, sorry, all hippies out there. I didn't mean to offend you. But this, this traditional one, day by day, uh, uh, perhaps you've heard it before. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day what he deems best, lovingly. It's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. That great hymn, Biblical Truths. Our God is over all these things. And he's the one who deems when there would be a trial and a season of difficulty. And he's the one who deems when there's a season of rest. And for Paul, this was a season of rest. But regardless of whether it was a season of of rest or a season of trial, there is a protection that goes on for every believer in every season. Even when you're not being protected physically, God protects our souls and preserves our souls for himself. And we may face the worst trial possible, even the loss of life, but God promises to preserve our soul. He says in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. 
In John 10.28, he speaks of his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Our sovereign God promises to protect our souls, to preserve us, to keep us. And we may go through the worst physical trial, but God will be there. He will preserve us. He will keep us. That's a promise we can stand on. For Paul, it gave him strength in Corinth. For us, it gives us strength as he calls us to follow him and proclaim him to others. The third promise, the promise of people. God says to Paul, no one will attack you to harm you. And then says, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Now the four, he's not saying you won't get attacked. For I have many in the city city who are my people, most likely it's do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I have many people in this city. He gives him a reason to to not be silent, but to go on speaking, for I have many people in this city. I have many in the city who are my people. God promises to Paul a people. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's an unusual thing. He's saying, Paul, don't give up speaking, for I have many in the city who are my people. Now, if you know Corinth, and you knew Corinth at this time, you'd be like, wait a second, doesn't compute. This is a city known for debauchery. There are people in this city who, if anything, are not God's people. They are people who are given to debauchery and worldliness, who, who, who have no interest in God. So what is God saying when he tells Paul at the beginning, and, and, and this promise was probably you know, early on in his ministry there, that, that he has many people in this city? What, what could he mean? Well... We can look elsewhere in Scripture to understand this. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, and he says this to them. He, he addresses them this way, and it's very interesting to see how, how Paul looks at the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be saints, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And later in that section says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says, you guys are called. You are called one. Called by whom? Called by God. The reason that they're in Christ, the reason that the gospel is a a delight for them is because God has called them. That's what's behind them coming to Christ is the call of God. In Romans chapter 11, as uh, Paul talks about this issue, and he uses the example of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who lived in Israel in a time when when it seemed like the whole nation was going south, going, going off and rejecting God. And he despaired and he said to God, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one in the whole nation. It's awful, God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I would assume that meant women as well. I have kept for myself. Paul, I mean, Elijah, you're despairing, but you know what? I've been at work, and I have kept people for myself. I'm the one who has preserved them for myself. So be encouraged, Elijah. I have a people because I have called them. I have brought them to myself. John 10, and we could look at many scriptures for this. This is the last one. Jesus speaking, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking of his disciples at the time. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Future tense. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I hope this helps us understand what God's saying to Paul. He's saying, Paul, though they don't yet know me, though if left to themselves they would not want to know me, I have set my sights on a people here in Corinth, and I have many people here And so, Paul, be encouraged when you go out to share the gospel that you're going to be part of how I call them to myself, but it's me who's behind it. I'm the one who's behind this all. So be emboldened, Paul, as you go to share the gospel that I have people here, and I'm going to use you as the means to draw them to myself. So go for it, Paul, because I have many people he wanted to encourage Paul to go for it in sharing the gospel. And you know what, guys? This is not only the hope for Paul. This is the hope for us in our mission. We're not in Corinth. We're in the Merrimack Valley. And our hope and mission is not, not how clearly we understand the gospel, as important that it, as that is. Our hope and mission is not as how kind and loving and Christ-like we are as a church, as we shine to this community, as important as that is, that's not where our hope is. Our hope isn't in, in how eloquently we can share the gospel. Our hope is not in some methodology of how to reach someone's life. That's not where our hope is. Not, not to ignore those things. We want to think about how to thoughtfully, carefully, wisely love people and represent Christ to them. That's important. But that's not where our hope is. For if God did not set his sights on people and work powerfully to draw them to himself, it's all for naught. It's a waste of time in terms of bringing them in. I mean, it's not a waste of time in how it gives God glory, but in terms of reaching people, if he has not set his sights on people and if he doesn't work miracles in them, they're not going to respond. That's how hard the human heart is. I'm not saying that people are as evil as they could be, but, but even in a fairly good person, apart from the work of God, there's no appetite to be a worshiper of God, to say, I'm so bad that Christ had to die for me. Nobody wants to say that, apart from a miracle. To say that my life is in God alone, and apart from Him I have nothing. No one wants to say that. It takes a miracle. And it's only ultimately because God has people that they are His people. And that was Paul's hope, and that's our hope and mission. And that truth is to propel us in mission, not to hinder us in mission. Hear that. That truth is to propel us in mission, not hinder us in mission. It's not about who God is not calling. It's about whom God is calling. That's the point of that promise to Paul. That's the point of that promise to us. Sometimes this truth gets turned upside down and says, well, you know... Whatever, I guess I shouldn't do anything. And, and think of all the people God's not calling. That's not the, the point here. Think of all the, God, all the people that God is mercifully reaching and who set, has set his heart on and who has called to himself, who has said before time began, this one's going to come to me. I will work in time through you, through King of Grace Church, to draw them to myself. And the picture I see in Scripture is a picture of a great multitude coming to the Lord. We've got a lot of work cut out for us because Revelation 7 says, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. How many people can you number? You can probably number a lot. I don't know. I've never counted to a million, but I, I guess I could. I could do 
division and stuff and figure it out. This is a multitude that no one could number. Essentially meaning this is a huge multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. The multitude is innumerable. It's expansive. Is that how we think of people here in our mission? Do we hear God saying, I have many people in the Merrimack Valley? Now, we don't know the specifics. He doesn't tell us, and I don't think he could trust us with that. (laughs) Um, Because we're not, I don't know, I couldn't handle it. But imagine if he came and said, King of Grace Church, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work through other churches too. I have things to say to them. But for you guys, I want you to know that over the next 10 years, I'm going to use you guys to touch the lives of 10,000 people. 10,000 people over the next 10 years are going to be touched through your lives. There's going to be people who are wandering sheep, are going to be cared for, added, established, maybe sent down. There's going to be 5,000 of those are people who don't know Christ right now through you are going to come to know Christ through this church. Imagine that if God said 10,000 to us. How would that affect how you live today? How would that affect what you do this week? How would that affect how you plan the next 10 years? I'd want to be here saying, Lord, this is great. What do you want? I'd, 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 want, I'd want every day to think, Lord, is there somebody? Is there somebody that you have for me to share with to somehow touch their lives, even just to love them, to do something simple for them, and to pray for an opportunity to talk about the whole reason that we love them as, as our neighbors or friends or coworkers, to talk about Christ? I would be expectant. And that's what God's doing in Paul. He's propelling him. But that's also for us. That's the truth. God has a, uh, an innumerable amount of folks that he's reaching. And he wants our heart to be the same. Now, he doesn't tell us the number, but I'm not going to assume it's a small number. I'm going to assume it's a big number. I'd rather be wrong that way than the other way. How about you? I'd rather be overestimating the number, which I don't think I can do, than underestimating. That's how I think we're supposed to handle this, how we're supposed to think of it. It's to give us confidence, not to hinder us. And when I look around at Scripture and these things, and when I look at God's grace in us as a church, He doesn't do what He's done so we can keep it to ourselves. He he doesn't give us a building. He doesn't build this church. He doesn't build us up in Him. He doesn't create a people that I think in many ways reflect His love and truth. He doesn't do these things just so that we can be a little holy huddle. He does these things because he wants to use us to touch lives. He wants to use us to plant churches. He wants to use us to do the work of the kingdom. He wants to use us like he used Paul. Now, not quite the same, but yes, the same. The same thing is going on. So let's think that way. Let's hear the promise of God in that way. Let's hear him promising of people, not only to Paul, but to us. Let us hear God promising a people. Let us hear God promising protection. Let us hear God promising his presence. And let us see God's provision, like Paul saw. The story is just full of how God provides. Not only does he provide in the beginning of the story, providing a Priscilla and Aquila. Isn't it wonderful of God to give him friends when he was feeling so low? Ready-made teams already there. God saying, you know what, I, I worked out this whole thing with Claudius, kicking them out so they could be there for you. I provided them for you. And then, on top of that, Silas and Timothy finally come, and unexpectedly they bring a large financial gift so he can be released to share the gospel. God provides for him that way. And then, it, then we hear the promise. The promise is given probably some point in there. We don't know time-wise where it is, 
Um, not necessarily in the chronology of the stories that there it could have been earlier, but God gives his promise. And then Paul is emboldened. He preaches the gospel. He preaches to the Jews. Yes, they indeed reject him. And, and, and he's sorrowful over that. That's another message someday. We can talk about his sorrow over that. He's sorrowful, but he goes to the Gentiles. Uh, he goes next door to this guy, uh, Titius Justus. And um, I could say that with American accent. Yeah. Titius Justus. Um, anyhow, he goes to this guy next door, and, uh, and that's his headquarters, and, and people start coming to Christ in the droves. He's there. It's so successful. He's there 18 months, pretty much one of the longest, if not the longest, uh, mission uh, experience in one town for him the whole time. He's there 18 months. There's a huge harvest brought in. And then, indeed, there is opposition. There's opposition and being reviled by the Jews, and it, where you would expect at this point that he would be beaten up and all that, they... Take him to before Gallio, and Gallio actually is a very famous um, ruler. He's a proconsul. He's a governor of that whole region. He's uh, connected to the emperor. He's well known and well regarded, and that's part of why Luke includes it here because he wants he wants us to see how Gallio handled, handled Christianity. He wants his original readers to see so that they would understand how to handle Christianity. That's part of why it's there. And so, what does Gallio do? They bring him, and, and where before he might have said, "Well, go beat that guy, send him in the jail." He doesn't do that. He says, "Guys, this is." This is an argument among Jews. This is not Roman law issue. This is you. It's one Jews who don't believe in Christ and those who do. That's your issue. I will have nothing to do with this. And what he does is he endorses Christianity under the umbrella of Judaism that was recognized as a legitimate religion at the time. I'll have nothing to do with that. And then uh, he further shows that by when he drives him out of the tribunal and then there's a, some sort of mob scene and they beat the synagogue and the sense gallery says, well, yeah, I guess that's deserved. Arguing about stupid things, they brought that before me. That's basically communicating that. It's like, you know, they have no argument. I have no respect for them bringing that to me. And so God does a lot through that. He, he protects Paul. He protects the mission. And uh, though it doesn't stop persecution, it looks like it had an effect. And probably had an effect in the early church at times, too, to realize that this was, Christianity was recognized by Roman law. And so God fulfills all his promises for Paul and Corinth. And there's a, some carryover into the rest of the storyline for Paul, too. We know ultimately that Paul's life was taken through persecution by Nero. But God fulfilled these promises in Corinth and fulfilled the principles behind the promises ultimately for Paul and for all believers. If the bank could come off as we close. We need, we need the promises of God. We need to ground ourselves in the promises of God. The promises of God, our sovereign God's promises, are our hope and strength for our mission. Our hope and strength for life. Our good and merciful God, He fulfills all His promises. Do you believe that? This book is full of God's promises. And I don't have time to go into this right now, but I could list promises for you, and you could probably discover many more than I know digging into this book. Are you discouraged? Are you anxious? Are you hindered in your mission, thinking, you know, I share and no one responds? Dig into the book. Dig into the promises of God. Dig into those promises. Stand on those promises about God's character about his presence, about his protection, about the fact that he has a people. Dig in and stand on those things and know the same hope and strength that Paul knew for the mission.
Father, thank you so much for who you are. Really, behind all this is you and your graciousness. And Lord, you're the same as you were 2,000 years ago. You're the same God. And Lord, there's people here who right now need you to speak your promises to them. There's people here who are discouraged or disheartened in some way or perhaps distracted from the mission. And I pray, God, you would minister your promises to them. They would stand on those promises. And it wouldn't just be something they think and know is true, but something they experience. They would experience your life and your strength and fresh joy, fresh hope to follow after you. And Lord, would you use us in the mission as we do that, and would you be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Let's all stand and